Yes, we have two readings this morning. Luke chapter 24, beginning to read at verse 49. You'll find that on page 1062 in the church Bibles. 1062. Luke 24, beginning to read at verse 49. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then the second reading is Acts chapter 1, which you'll find on page 1092. 1092. The first part of Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity in which we can come before you in worship and in praise. Thank you for your word. We pray that you will humble us before your word, that you will make us receptive, that you will make us submissive, and that your spirit will give us hearts which are responsive to this message. And we ask all this in your name and for your glory. Amen. We all want to know who God is, right? Presumably that's part of the reason why you're here. And if we want to know who God is, then it's fair to say that at some point we need to move beyond the mere fact 
that God is one God made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's fair to say that we need to know God the Father, we need to know God the Son, and we need to know God the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the nature, the character, the distinctives of all three members of the Trinity. We need to understand how their roles differ. And it's also fair to say that we may not always have paid as much attention to God the Holy Spirit as we could have. Well, today I have the privilege of starting a series which will hopefully go some way toward rectifying that. And it's a series entitled The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. Today is volume one of five. We'll be looking at the ascension, that how when Christ goes, the Spirit comes and the Spirit is sent. And that will be followed by sermons over the coming weeks on Pentecost, on the Trinity, on the new birth, and finally on the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, being first means that I have the advantage of being able to ignore all the difficult questions in the sure and certain knowledge that others will feel obliged to answer them in their, in their sermons. So I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to leave you with a lot of questions, and you'll just have to come back for the answers. Luke. Luke, who wrote Acts and who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was a careful man. He was a physician. He was a very good writer. He was, in effect, a very good investigative reporter. And so he carefully investigated what happened. He interviewed multiple witnesses, and he recorded his findings in the Gospel of Luke, an account of the life and times of Jesus Christ, which he wrote for a man called Theophilus. So in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he begins like this. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's why Luke wrote his gospel. He wanted an orderly, accurate account of the life of Jesus Christ. And he ends that account, as Phil read for us from Luke chapter 24, when he records Jesus saying to the disciples, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. And he also records him saying, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit there. Jesus then leaves them. Right? As Luke records when he ends his first volume, that gospel, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And that was volume one. That was the gospel of Luke. Volume one of Luke's two-part work. It's a pity that the order of the gospels isn't Matthew, Mark, John, Luke because then it would be that much more obvious that the second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, follows on from his first. So Luke continues his account, right, when he says in the passage that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
So in those first two verses, Luke is saying, Theophilus, remember how in the first book I told you about everything Christ did, about his birth, about his death, about his resurrection, about his teaching, until he was taken to heaven. Well, before he was taken to heaven, he gave the apostles some instructions. He prepared them. He prepared them for what was to come after he left. So let me expand on that. And he then unpacks those first two verses in the next nine verses in Acts chapter 1. So in verses 3 to 8, he gives Theophilus a summary of how Jesus prepared the apostles and for what would happen afterwards. And then in verses 9 to 11, he gives a summary of what happened when Jesus left, when he ascended into heaven. So that's how we'll look at the passage. We'll look at it in two parts. Firstly, preparation, and then secondly, ascension. Now that time of preparation, which Luke summarizes for us in those few verses, that covers a period of 40 days. So Jesus didn't leave them immediately after his resurrection. He stayed with them for another six weeks or so, and then he left. And during that period, he spends time with them one-to-one. He spends time with them in groups. He warns them a number of times that he's going to go to heaven, and he helps them come to terms with the fact that he wouldn't return again in their lifetime. He wants them to be prepared. And during that time of preparation, Luke tells us that Jesus concentrates on three things. He concentrates firstly on proving that he was resurrected and alive. He concentrates secondly on teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he concentrates thirdly on preparing them for what we might call a spirit-empowered witness. So look at verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to this man and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So that's his first priority. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God, his second priority. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked them, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, his third priority, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Luke tells Theophilus, And he tells us that Jesus gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He spoke about the kingdom of God. He promised, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes on you. Those three things. Resurrection proof, the kingdom of God, and a Spirit-empowered witness. So looking briefly at those, regarding resurrection proof, I'm not going to dwell on the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Christ, because we've looked at that on multiple occasions in the last few months. But what I would like to answer is the question, so what? So what if Jesus was or wasn't resurrected? Plenty of people claim to be Christians, but they deny the resurrection. What are the implications of that? If he was resurrected, what difference does it make? I think there's a few things. Firstly, the resurrection means that death is defeated. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Paul writes, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because Jesus was resurrected, it proves that he conquered death. And by that, he secured eternal life for you, the believer. It means that death for the Christian doesn't hold terror anymore. If Jesus was resurrected, then where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's the first thing. <laughs> Secondly, the resurrection confirms that Christ is God. So in Romans 1, chapter, verse 4, Paul writes, Jesus, through the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus was resurrected, it confirms that he is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The resurrection is the proof, the evidence that he was who he claimed to be. And thirdly, the resurrection means that you are delivered from the penalty for your sin. So in Romans 4.25, Paul says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus' life and death were complete and perfect. He was accepted as a sacrificial lamb on your behalf and you're declared just because he accepted your penalty. He paid the price for you and the resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was sufficient for your sin. The resurrection of Jesus means that death is defeated. It means that Christ is God, and it means that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins. And the converse is equally true. If Christ was not resurrected, death is not defeated. Christ is not God, and you will pay for your sins. If Jesus wasn't raised for the de from the dead, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. The dead are lost. And you're to be pitied more than all men. And that Bible on your lap isn't worth the paper it's printed on. But praise God, he was raised. And he does live. As over 500 test witnesses confirmed, he did gloriously defeat death and you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. So that was Jesus' first priority during those 40 days of preparation. Proof. He was alive. He gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive, that he was resurrected. His second priority was the kingdom of God. Now he had to spend a bit of time on this. Because as you can see from their question in verse 6, they still didn't get it. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. John Calvin said there were as many errors in that question as there were words. They were expecting a physical, a national, a regional kingdom of Israel to be reestablished, the time of David to come back again. But Jesus wanted them to realize that his kingdom was in fact spiritual, not physical, that it was multinational, not national, that it was global, not regional. He was inaugurating his kingdom, his rule, and his reign in the hearts of those who would come to put their faith in him. And it's a kingdom built on the foundation of his death and of his resurrection, not built on the foundation of politics and military might. That kingdom will be finally physically fully realized when Christ returns, but when that will be, we don't know. So in reply to their question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's none of your business, in effect. 
It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his authority. Now, many people have tried to work out when Christ will return, despite him saying, it's none of your business. What Christ says is what we should be focused on is what he calls the gift my Father promised, namely the Holy Spirit, which brings us to his third priority during those 40 days. A spirit-empowered witness. So look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this verse is massively encouraging for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's encouraging because in it we've got God, Christ's promise that finally the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was going to come and it was going to come soon. And it's a promise that was long in coming. The events which were to take place at Pentecost, literally within days, ten days after Christ ascended, Pentecost happened. Those events, when God's Spirit were poured out, when many heard the gospel, when 3,000 were saved because of Peter's, out of Peter's sermon, those events were prophesied hundreds of years before by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by Joel, by many others. So one example, Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jesus tells them, it's time. After all these years, all these decades, all these generations, now is the time. The spirit of God will be poured out on you, but you need to stay in Jerusalem for a little while until that happens, which is what we then see happen at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit not only saved them, but also propelled them to be witnesses to the good news in Jerusalem and beyond. Right? It wasn't just a saving effect, it was also a propelling effect. And it didn't just apply to that special group then. It applies to all believers now. Now I'm sure this will be picked up later in this series, and Christians do hold different views of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but for now, I'll just mention that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a gift of enabling, of empowering for mission, which was given to specific individuals in the Old Testament, like Moses. But the point of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit was then poured out on all disciples, and since then is given to all believers at their conversion. We're all enabled, we're all equipped to take the gospel out. Verse 8 is amazing because Jesus announced finally the baptism, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would occur soon and for all believers since, and then the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. Secondly, verse 8 is encouraging because it's the playbook. It's the playbook for the expansion of the gospel following Christ's ascension. It's Christ speaking, speaking almost like a sports coach or a military leader, and he's saying, in phase one, you'll concentrate on Jerusalem, and then in phase two, Judea and Samaria, and then in phase three, the Holy Spirit will take you to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly how things unfold. So Luke records in Acts chapter one through to seven how the disciples became the witnesses in Jerusalem and stayed there. And then in chapters 8 to 12, how they are witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. And then finally in chapters 13 to 28, they're witnesses to the ends of the earth, where they go to the end of the then known world. Thirdly, verse 8 is encouraging because it shows us that Christ's ministry did not end when he, descended, when he ascended, when he left. 
It was just starting a new phase. Jesus said, you are my witnesses, witnesses to the truth of the gospel, to the truth that God sent a redeemer, his son, who would save us from judgment and fully restore the relationship between us and God. So the ministry of Christ didn't stop at his exit. Luke's first volume and the other gospels detail the first phase of Christ's ministry, but Acts details the second phase. It carries on. That old traditional title of the Acts of the Apostles is really a misnomer. It wasn't the Acts of the Apostles, it's the continuing act of Christ. In phase two, it is another single ministry being played out. Phase one being where he ministered directly and physically as recorded in the Gospels. Phase two being when he ministers indirectly and through the Holy Spirit as recorded in Acts and through the rest of the New Testament and right through to today. That verse eight is encouraging. And it's amazing because they knew that the Holy Spirit finally would come. They knew that the Spirit-empowered gospel would be taken out by them. And they knew that Jesus' ministry would continue. And that's how Christ prepared the apostles. He proved to them that he was resurrected, that he was raised from the dead, and he helped them to understand the eternal implications of that event. He taught them about the true spiritual multinational kingdom of God to which he would add millions over the centuries through their witness. And he helped them to understand that the expansion of the kingdom, the witness to the good news of the gospel, would take place not through their own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And only then did he leave. And he ascended. Which brings us to the second topic the ascension of Christ. So reading from verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go, into heaven. It was Ascension Day earlier this week, on Thursday, the 5th. I didn't realize it, and I suspect that's true of most of us here. And there's a fellow in the States by the name of Russell Moore who has something to say to us about that. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, at the Southern Baptist Convention in the USA. So they're probably the biggest denomination in the States, and he's basically the guy who engages with politics and culture and media on their behalf. Someone for whom I have a huge amount of respect. Very, very good man. He said this about the Ascension. It's kind of terrible how Ascension Day is almost completely ignored by lower church Christians. That's us. We could say it's because we don't observe the liturgical calendar, but we do when it comes to major feast days such as Christmas, recognizing the incarnation, or Easter, recognizing the resurrection. It's a shame because the ascension is a doctrine all of us need to remember constantly in order to make it in life. The ascension, after all, tells us who we are and what's going on all around us. Now, you may think at first hearing that he's exaggerating a bit for effect, right? Because he wants Ascension Day celebrated. 
He says that we need to remember Ascension Day because the Ascension tells us who we are and what's going on all around us. So he makes two claims. He says, the Ascension of Christ tells me who I am. And he says, the Ascension of Christ tells me what's going on around me. So how does the Ascension of Christ tell me who I am, you may ask? Well, as I mentioned before, the Ascension isn't just the story of how Christ left The ascension is the story of how Christ's ministry enters into its next phase and continues even today through the Holy Spirit. The ascension means that you, Christian, are no longer exiled from God. It means that the insurmountable gulf between you and an infinite holy God has been surmounted. It means that you're always connected to God, always. You're connected to Christ by faith through the Holy Spirit as a body of people is connected to one of their own, to their head. Your representative, your head, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, always in God's presence and always in communion with him. In fact, the way the Bible puts it is, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're connected to God through Christ. And that's regardless of your situation. So I don't know about you, but there's this chain of events that easily happens when things start getting tough, right? You start struggling with something at work or at home, and the worry starts to simmer. Then eventually you become anxious and the worry starts to bubble over. And then you start to question, why does God feel so distant? Why are these things happening to me? And then you start to drift. And you start to drift away from God. And it's a slippery slope because the next step is outright despair. What's happening is that you're assuming that God's nearness to you is defined by the strength of your faith or by your ability to see him at work in your life. Right? You're behaving as if your access to God is without a mediator, and if you don't sense him, then he's not there. You're assuming that if you're struggling with doubts and fears, it means that God is slipping away, and if your situation is difficult, it's because he's absent. But that's completely wrong-headed. You're forgetting what Paul says in Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The ascension of Jesus means that your nearness to God is through Christ, and he hasn't moved. He's at the right hand of God. Your nearness to God isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent on Christ. And that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. That's how the ascension tells you who you are. That's your identity. You are in Christ. Moore also said that the ascension tells me what's going on around me. And what he means is that Jesus didn't retire when he ascended. He didn't say, job done. As I mentioned before, his ministry continues. And God right now is moving history along a path to an ultimate end. 
And it's an end in which, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, he, that is Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. History is moving toward a set purpose and end. That's what's going on around you. And Christ is building his kingdom. That's what's going on below all the froth and the noise around you. And you can get a peek through the curtain if you look at the book of Revelation as to how this will all end. So there's no need to feel nervous or apprehensive or fretful when crazy things start happening around you. Even if you're an American and you're faced with a frighteningly depressing voting decision come presidential election time. What a choice. Talk about the devil or the deep blue sea. We don't have to go off the deep end of the craziness around us, at the pressures that are brought to bear regardless of the source. Because Jesus isn't hiding and waiting for a safe time to return. He's enthroned with God the Father. He's moving history toward its end goal. And his absence now is a mercy. It's patience. It's him giving you, if you're the non-Christian, the time and the space and the opportunity to turn to him and to find eternal peace with the Savior. But it's a patience that's on a clock. Russell Moore is right. We need to remember the ascension to make it in life. The ascension of Christ does tell us who we are. It does tell us what's going on until history reaches its end. And as those two men, those two angels, say to the apostles, this same Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. He will return as the judge of all men. And the only question that then remains is, will you be ready? Will you be ready? when he returns. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for, the, for your ongoing ministry of grace and of mercy, which did not end at your, dissension, at your ascension and continues through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the assurance that comes with your ascension, the assurance that death is defeated and that you are indeed the Son of God, that our sin has indeed been washed away. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our comforter, our counselor, our enabler, who equips us to take your gospel to the world. We pray all of this in your name and for your glory.